my kind of interactions with Katie, I was responding out of that place. But here's the thing. I don't think I had any idea. I wouldn't have said I felt anxious or stressed. I'm just doing life, you know. But yet, it was coming out in ways that were actually, you know, harming the people who I love most around me. And life is a difficult thing. Um, life happens to us and things disappoint us, big or small. Um, things, you know, that we experience loss, big or small. Um, things frustrate us and anger us that we feel are wrong in some way, shape, or form, and we carry that with us. Things trouble us and worry us and stress us out, and we carry kind of low-level angst kind of with us. You know, life happens, and it, and it evokes a kind of an emotional response. And, and what emotions are, I think often emotions can be the thing that gets our focus. But really what emotions are is, I've heard them best described like um, a light on a dashboard of a car. Have you ever had that moment you're driving along and the warning light comes, and you don't really know what it means, but you know that you're now panicking because it doesn't mean good news. Uh, emotions are like the kind of you know, dashboard warning light um, on our lives. They tell us that something has happened to us or is happening to us that, that in some way, shape, or form needs addressing or kind of processing. But my experience is that often life is so busy and we're so on the go um, and, and also, I think we live in a culture that, that, that kind of, we're, we're subconsciously encouraged to be okay and to project a kind of image of togetherness out into the world the whole time, that it's very easy to be totally unaware of what's actually going on beneath the surface. We're feeling sad, but we don't really realize it. We're feeling angry about something that happened a few days ago, but we've kind of just got over it. But actually, it's still kind of present in some way, shape, or form, and it's making us that little bit more irritable or slightly more reactive or um, a bit more grumpy or hard to be around. Um, we want to be like Jesus. We want to kind of grow in intimacy with him. We want to become more like him, but we keep kind of running into these things where we find ourselves just being reactive and, and, and hard to be around. And, and it's like, why is that? Because there's stuff going on beneath the surface of our lives that Jesus is just as much Lord of, that we need to let him into, that we need to see so that we can let him into, so that he can bring his healing and renewal and transformation and change. And I think in some ways, um, I would not be someone who would describe myself as particularly emotional. And I think here's where the difficulty is. is I think, I, I sometimes hear people say, oh, I'm not emotional. And I've come to the place where I've realized that that's rubbish. We're all emotional because we're all incredibly human. The difference is, is just some of us are a bit more attuned to what's going on at the emotional level or perhaps experience those emotions more acutely than others. But we're all emotional, and that is always kind of driving from stuff that's happened to us that we're kind of responding to. And actually, when we start to notice what's going on at that level with Jesus in partnership with him, it can bring incredible healing and freedom because we start to spot all the sort of faulty things that are going on that are actually taking us away from his vision for our life and trapping us in kind of patterns of reactivity and grumpiness. And so I want to look over these next two weeks at this practice of silence and solitude. It's a simple practice. It's an ancient practice. It's a practice that we see in the life of Jesus. It's a practice we see at other places in Scripture. But it's a practice that... Um, is, is kind of the exposer of this stuff. 
And I want to, um, to kind of dig into it by looking at someone who, I would say inadvertently, um, ends up practicing this, and that's Elijah. And so we're going to look at Elijah um, in, in 1 Kings. If you're familiar with Elijah, um, if you're not, don't worry. He's um, uh, one of the Old Testament prophets. He doesn't get his own book, which always feels a bit sad because he's quite a big deal. But he, yeah, what's that about? I'm sure there's a reason. I'll ask God one day. Um, but Elijah is a you know, moderately significant character in the book of Kings. He's quite a famous one. And we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 19. Um, but just before this, um, Elijah's had his kind of famous victory. Um, which is his victory on Mount Carmel over the prophets of Baal. The prophets, um, uh, Baal worship was prevalent in Israel. Elijah was kind of coming up against this. And so to kind of combat this, he challenged um, the prophets to a kind of whose God is real type contest. Um, He built this great sort of fire um, and then kind of invited the prophets of Baal, there are a good few hundred of them, so you know they had numbers on their side, um, to pray and ask Baal to send down fire and, and, and light it. And, and they do that. They try their best. Um, they really go to town on it. And nothing happens. And then Elijah comes along and says, well, this is all a bit too easy. You've not managed it, but let's, let's you know, even though if God now made a fire, that'd be pretty impressive. Let, let's put ourselves in negative equity. And so chucks a ton of water over the fire, then prays, um, and of course, it comes to light. This incredible like moment of God just, like, you know, God's power and presence. You know, a complete defeat of Baal, a complete display of who the true God is. Um, and the prophets of Baal are then um, Elijah orders them to be killed. They're killed. It's this great kind of victory moment. And we pick the story up literally just after this. Um, so Ahab is king of Israel. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. Reading from verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Let's pause there a moment. So Elijah's had this incredible breakthrough, power, victory moment. Moments later, his life is under threat. You would expect the reality, well, what's the problem? My God is clearly way more powerful than Baal. Bring it on, Jezebel. But, but what's his response? He runs off. He's afraid. Uh, have you ever experienced that? You have this incredible moment a breakthrough in your relationship with God, an answer to prayer, a moment of encounter with God, and then roll on a month, something happens to you, and you're freaking out. It's almost as if the power that God has displayed in your life was never, ha- never happened, because for some reason, it, it didn't sort of change your view of who you think he is. 
Like, Elijah's had this incredible victory moment, and yet somehow, beneath the surface, he's remained unmoved and unchanged by it. And so he freaks out, he's scared, he, he runs off, and he, he, he goes into the wilderness, and he goes into the wilderness by himself. To put it another way, he goes to the place of silence and the place of solitude. And what is the place of silence and solitude? The place of silence and solitude is the place where you go, be it five minutes, be it five hours, be it five days, to be by yourself. There, is, you know, there aren't other people around um, interacting with you. And where you go to kind of be, be quiet. You're, the distraction of life, the other voices aren't kind of surrounding you anymore. And so what are you left with? You're left with yourself. And you're left with God. The place of silence and solitude is the place that God uses to confront us with both our true self, what's actually going on, not what we'd like to think is going on or hope's going on, but what's actually going on, and the place where he confronts us with who he truly is in a way that we're unable to avoid because we're not just burying ourselves in a distraction. We're not just kind of lost in the busyness. Someone else doesn't come and kind of assail us and grab us for something because we're, we're just in that place by ourselves. They can't. And what happens in that place of silence and solitude? Well, Elijah goes in for a, uh, for, for a day, and he comes to a broom bush, sat, sta- sits down, and prays one of the most depressing pray- prayers in Scripture. Um, I mean, it's essentially a suicide prayer. He says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. What's going on? What's going on? I think what we see going on here is the first thing that silence and solitude does. It reveals how we're feeling. And what Elijah is feeling is, is, is a combination of kind of despair and loneliness. He feels like he's on his own. There's, there's kind of no, you know, no one to protect him, no one to help him. He's by himself. And he's, he's kind of come to his end. He's in a place of despair. He hasn't got any more energy left. He hasn't got anything more to give. I, I'm just lost. And he admits it. He admits it. It comes out. The place of silence and solitude is the place where what's going on beneath the surface, how we're feeling, rises up and God and see it. We carry on with the, with the narrative. So it says, Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So Elijah kind of admits and, and, and you know, realizes the kind of state of his despair, the state of what's going on beneath the surface. And, and what happens next? He falls asleep. He falls asleep. And in that place of kind of falling asleep, um, God sends an angel to come and to tend to his needs. This, and it's really practical. And um, encourages him to rest, provides him with food, encourages him to eat and kind of replenish himself. And uh, and we, we see in here the kind of the second thing that happens in the place of silence and solitude because the place of silence and solitude is the place where our kind of tiredness levels are revealed. 
Have you ever um, been going, 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 and then you've got a holiday? And day one of the holiday, you feel extraordinarily tired. And it, it kind of feels like it's come from nowhere. It's almost like a surprise. Like, why am I feeling so tired? This is really weird. I, I, I've, I've had this before. I've, I've felt ill, uh, I've, like fallen ill on the first day of my holiday, I've sort of sniffy nose or what have you. You know, sometimes we go so long and so fast, we don't realize actually how good we are. And it's in this place of silence and solitude that God, and it's his grace to us, it's his gift to us, kind of reveals to us, you know, you're tired. You need food, you need rest, you need sleep. You're not attending to your basic physical needs. Because actually, if we're not attending to our basic physical needs, that affects us spiritually, it affects us emotionally, it affects our whole self. Um, and it's in this place of silence and solitude where we stop, where we're by ourselves, where we're in the quiet, where suddenly we realize this. You know, just this week, I was um, sitting down to pray on Monday and Tuesday, actually. And um, uh, first thing in the morning, I just found myself nodding off. I was like, what on earth is this? And I felt quite bad. I was like, we shouldn't be nodding off in prayer. How awful. Like, I should be staying, you know, uh, how, how lazy of me. And God was like, well, you, you know, missed a good few nights sleep because of, of Seth. And there was something else that happened that went, meant we were up a bit late. You need to go to bed earlier tonight. I mean, I, we often don't think about that as a kind of spiritual thing, but it very much is. Um, and, and so silence and solitude is the place where God reveals that to us, but it's also the place where he replenishes us. It's the place where we're alone with him, just us and God, and he replenishes us. Whenever we make the space for God, whenever we make the space to be with Jesus, he replenishes us. It's restorative. You know, there's lots of things we can do that might be in some way restful, that might in some way um, be a break from work. You know, you could do the garden, it's very nice. Um, you could, um, you know, watch a movie on television. But those things aren't necessarily always replenishing. There's a difference between that which is kind of recreation and that which is replenishing, that which kind of restores us. And there, the place which is the place where we're replenished by God. He restores us, he feeds our soul. He gives us what we need. He gives us the kind of, the energy and, and, and the wherewithal to kind of face the day, be it that we've spent five minutes in that place or five hours, God replenishes us. And as that, he replenishes Elijah here. The narrative carries on. It says, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, 
and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mehalah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. What's going on here? So God comes to Elijah and he asks a question. He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why are you, why are you in the wilderness? Why are you running away? What, what, what are you doing here? What's going on? Why is this happening? And Elijah's response is, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have received your co- um, rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. In other words, Elijah is basically saying, I've been absolutely going for it for you, God. I've been giving it my all. No one else cares. They're all, you know, faithless, horrible people. And not only am I pretty impressive in my kind of following of you, I'm on my own. I'm doing this all on my own, and this is what I get. This is what I'm receiving. I'm receiving death threats. I'm receiving opposition. I'm here because I've just had enough. I'm here because I'm terrified. I'm here because I just feel so alone. And what's God's response? Go back out there and crack on. Oh, and by the way, um, you're not on your own. For start, you're going to have someone who's going to be an apprentice who will succeed you because it's not all about you, Elijah. It's way bigger than you. You just made it about yourself. Um, and also, there's 7,000 people who've not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not on your own at all. You've just become short-sighted. The place of silence and solitude is the place where God kind of confronts us and exposes our faulty and hidden motivations and assumptions about God, about ourselves, about how life should work. You know, we're operating on those the whole time. But often we don't notice them. We don't notice that we're doing something expecting God to somehow reward us. We don't notice that kind of, we're, oh, I'm by myself, it's so awful, you know, it's just me and me against the world, oh, poor me. And actually there's plenty of people who, who are actually standing with you in that thing. You, you've just become so focused on yourself that you've missed the bigger picture of what's going on. It's in the place of silence and solitude that God exposes this stuff. You know, we're, we're just with ourselves and we're just with God. We can't escape it anymore. And he allows it to kind of come to the surface such that we can see it, such that he can address it and speak into it, just like he does in the life of Elijah. You know, I found myself in, in prayer just, um, you know, a couple of months ago and I was, I, I was praying and I was like, oh, I'm feeling quite angry. What's this? Like, I'm feeling really annoyed. And God's like, okay, why are you feeling angry? Well, because that person last week was really rude to me. Oh, right, okay. So why has that angered you? Well, because they were rude. Yeah, but why is, that, why is that angering you? Why, is it, why are you still carrying that? Because they 
name to okay well, why is that bothering you well because I guess it's made me sort of question myself and who I am and my competence as a leader okay well, well who, who determines that do I or does someone else and it was one of those moments where um, you know it's so obvious on the face of it but you don't notice what's going on you don't notice that you're living for the affirmation of others you don't notice that you know in your anger you feel really righteous you know we always I, I think the problem is we, we often want to blame other people for what we're, we're feeling and often other people have played a role but we, we kind of therefore are able to kind of not admit or not face the role that we play what's going on within us and, 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 and I find this so often that I might be annoyed with something and it might be you know, right in some ways that I'm annoyed with it because someone might have been rude for example but that doesn't mean that necessarily the way in which I'm responding to it is, is therefore righteous and good and there's not actually things that that's tapping into you know, so often actually um, what drives me is not kind of good holy thoughts it's a need for affirmation it's a need for, um, you know, looking good in some way, shape, or form. It, it's, you know, it's other things. And actually what I'm reacting more to is those other things. I just don't want to see those things because they're not very comfortable because I want to think about myself in a really positive light. But God in his kindness confronts those things in our life, surfaces them. And it's, it's this practice of silence and solitude that is such a gift of God to us because it enables those things to be surfaced like no other practice that I think um, is kind of all to us. There's something about where you go to that place where it's just you and it's just God that he always uses it powerfully to transform and work in our lives. So how do we practice this? A few thoughts um, before I finish. So first of all, I... I would say, um, if you're anything like me, um, I'm an extrovert. Silence is not my natural bedfellow. Um, but I've learned more and more how much I need it. I might not always want it, but I need it. Um, that, that sometimes, for many of us, silence and solitude can feel like a threat. It might depend on your personality, but for some of us, this is how it feels. Because we're not used to being by ourselves, and we're not used to being quiet. And even if we are by ourselves, we might put some music on, or we might kind of surround ourselves with something. Um, something else. And so being in a place where we're just quiet by ourselves can sometimes feel quite threatening. And because of the nature of the practice and how God uses it, often what happens is you sit down in that place of silence and solitude and you stop. And all of a sudden you realize, you start feeling a bit, a bit anxious, a bit sort of on edge, or maybe a bit sort of down in some way, shape or form. And, and I think the natural temptation is to think, oh gosh, well this isn't how prayer should look, this feels negative, this can't be God. Um, and we instantly kind of tack to some form of distraction. That could even be a good, you know, spiritual distraction, like, well, I'm going to read through Corinthians. You know, we, we do something to kind of try and avert the feeling that we're experiencing because we don't like it. Um, but, but what's going on is, is not something new invading. It's something that was already present, just becoming, you know, coming to our attention. And so expect it to feel a bit uncomfortable. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It probably, if anything, means you're doing it right. Um, three sort of three thoughts as to how we practice this. First of all, sounds obvious, but create the space. Um, 
You know, you need to find that space somewhere. You might even need to negotiate, you know, with others in your sort of household where you can be by yourself and someone's not just going to pop through and ask you about something. Where you're not going to be bothered. Where someone else is looking after the children or grandchildren for five minutes. Um, you know, that, go to that room in your house where you're not going to see every job available under the sun um, that's going to distract you. And indeed, you might want to, in that space, close your eyes. Not because it's spiritual, but just because it stops you from being distracted by the kind of visual stimuli in the room. So create the space. Secondly, don't judge your time. Don't judge the time. So, A, it doesn't matter whether you spend you know, two minutes or two hours. Like, give yourself to the practice and don't judge it. I think so often we do this in prayer. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but we spend some time in prayer and we come away from the time of prayer and we judge it. We sort of go, oh, that wasn't very good, was it? Or I got a bit, quite a lot distracted or I'm a bit rubbish. Or, or we think, oh, that didn't seem particularly effective or I didn't hear God, so I'm obviously a bit of a rubbish Christian. We, we judge the time in some way. Did it feel productive? Did it not? Was it successful? Was it not? And it, it kills it. You know, when we judge time what we spend with people too regularly and too readily, it, it just kills relationship. If every time I spent time with Katie, afterwards I judged the time, it would, just, it would kill our relationship because there's times where we have an amazing time together, it's really fun, exciting, and we have a great laugh. And there's other times where it's boring because that's life. Um, there's times where it's just normal. There's times where we're just quiet and nothing particularly happened. You know, it's not tell a friend. But that's just life. And it's the same in prayer. When we judge our times of prayer, we, we actually kill them. Um, I think it's the enemy's kind of um, tactic to get us to judge our times of prayer. So it doesn't matter if you got distracted ten times. It doesn't matter if it felt productive or not. Just be in the space. Just be in that place of silence and solitude. You know, begin by just praying, hey, Jesus, I'd just like to come and meet with you for a minute. Spend your two minutes, and then whether it felt good, whether it didn't, don't worry. Carry on. Third, um, I would say commit for the long haul. Commit for the long haul. Um, spiritual practices are things we do to posture us in openness to what God wants to do in our life. It's just ways in which we kind of say, yes, God, in kind of different, from different angles, and we kind of let him in in different sort of perspectives. Um, but they're also things that, 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 they're not kind of instant success stories. I think too easily we can bring a kind of cultural instantness to uh, the life with God. You know, we're used now to ordering something on Amazon now. In fact, I'm very sure you can go on until about 11 o'clock and order something, and it will, it will be there tomorrow if you'd like. Um, you can order things on Prime now and have them within two hours. If I want to watch a film, I don't need to wait till it comes on the telly, which I used to when I was a kid. It's always on the telly because it's on Netflix. We're ever increasingly used to having things straight away. Um, and that's just not how the spiritual life works. It's a slow work. You know, it, it's not kind of, I've done a spiritual practice. I should either be having this massive, high-point, ecstatic experience with God, or it's, I've got it completely wrong, or it's the wrong practice for me. It's a, it's a lot more like going to the gym. Um, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. You know, if you go to the gym, you go for a run, you lift some weights, you wouldn't come out from that time expecting to be incredibly strong and be able to run a marathon. If someone thought that, they'd be delusional. In the same way, it's, it's crazy to think that we can spend time with God once in a new spiritual practice and expect to see radical transformation in our walk with God. 
you know, it, it's a slow work. It's undramatic. It's, it's a kind of day-by-day thing that, that actually, if you try and measure your, your progress in kind of days and weeks, you'll probably get to the point and give up. I would encourage you to look more in terms of months and years, generally, but also particularly for any spiritual practice. And so with the practice of silence and solitude, you know, if you're going to give it a go, and I'd really encourage you, why not give it a go? Just see what happens. But if you are, I'd encourage you maybe just commit to it for maybe three months. And it doesn't need to be a big thing. It could just be you spend two minutes each day, set a timer um, on your phone or somewhere in the house to remind you, two minutes each day, same time, whatever happens, happens. And then after three months, look back and just see. Okay, God, what have you been doing in this? Have I noticed anything? Like, what's been happening? And just see what happens. Like, I feel in many ways like I've barely sort of scratched the surface with this practice. I'm very much teaching with L plates on here, which is inevitably dangerous. But my experience is that the more and the longer I kind of do this regularly, the calmer I am, um, the less reactive I am, and I say less rather than not because I very much still am reactive, um, the, the kind of more perspective I have in life, um, the more kind of I'm aware of what's going on the surface and the ways that actually that's leaking out in passive aggression or reactivity and actually hurting and damaging those around me. And believe me, you can ask Katie, I've got a long way to go on that. Um, I'm not a modicum of patience and um, kindness and you know all the time. I'm very much still in progress. But I've noticed that through engaging in this practice, I've moved forward, I've grown, um, and I just feel really blessed by it. And so why not give it a go? and see what happens. Shall we pray? I'll just pray, and then let's just have a couple of minutes just of, uh, of silence and stillness now.